This morning's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual favor, fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate yourself with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thank you, David. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you have inspired your word and given it power. And you promise that it has power to transform our lives. So use it this morning, Lord, to transform us as our minds are renewed. And I pray that we might learn more today what it means to let your life live through us. That you might be glorified as we trust you with how we live in all our relationships in our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm struck by stories of POWs who spend time in prison or those who are in prisoners in World War II in the concentration camps and they're finally released after all that time and then they have to suddenly, though legally they're free citizens now and they're free to participate in life and they're free to live a different way, yet they still don't know how to do that very well because they've lived their lives as slaves for so long, as prisoners. I think there's a parallel there for us as believers in Jesus Christ. You see, Romans 1-11 through talks about all that God has done in setting us free, that we're prisoners to sin, chapters 1-3. through All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and we're prisoners, and yet when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, there's an incredible transformation that happens. 
He comes and lives inside us. He gives us His Holy Spirit and suddenly we are new creations. We have His life in us and we are set free. We're free to now be loved by Him, to be adopted in as His children. We're citizens of a new kingdom. We have a whole new life to live, a whole new way to live. But we don't always know what that looks like. We still find ourselves too often conformed to the world to the old way of living. So Romans chapter 12 and following to the end of the book through 16 really is describing for us how God wants us to now live as he lives his life out through us. What's to be different for us? And as David Roper last week talked about, we first present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. We give our lives to him and then we are to not be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So there will be a struggle for us. Will we be conformed to the world and live like everyone else, or will we be transformed by the renewing of our minds? So in our passage today, Paul is pointing to, in chapter 12, 3 and following, we'll begin in 3 through 21, he wants to show us how we are free citizens of his now. He lives inside us and he wants us to live transformed lives in our relationships. First, our relationship with ourselves, then our relationship with others, and then in particular, our relationships with those who harm us, who do evil to us. So let's look at these together and see what's to be different about us, what's to be transformed about us as our minds are renewed and we begin to live out the grace in the power of the Holy Spirit that God has planted in us. So first, he wants us to have a new, a realistic view of ourselves. Beginning in verse 3, Paul writes, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober or realistic judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Again, we're talking about what it means to be squeezed into the world's mold versus having the view of being part of the heavenly kingdom, Christ in us, living his life through us. So when we talk about a view of ourselves, how does the world want us to view ourselves? How does it, what mold does it squeeze us into? Well, as Paul says here, he says, the problem with the world and our natural response too often is to think too highly of ourselves. What he's really talking about here is to think in a way that we are more important than anyone else, that it's what happens to me that matters most. It's putting self on the throne. It's, in other words, living a self-centered life. That is what is natural for us. We're naturally self-centered. We naturally love ourselves first. It's part of our fallen nature. As soon as Adam and Eve turned their backs on God, one of the immediate responses was, we became self-centered. We became selfish. As God says, and Jesus said in the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I've heard it taught that, well, I can't love others very well because I don't really love myself very well, so I need to love myself first. So I need to learn to love myself first. 
To be honest, folks, that's heresy. (laughs) You see, what Jesus is saying in that verse is He's saying we all naturally love ourselves. And He's saying what I want you to do to live out in the kingdom is to learn to put others, make others as important as you've already made yourself in your own heart. (laughs) Because we naturally put ourselves first. We concern ourselves with ourselves. We're taught to be number one by our culture and by our own selfishness. We think we have to take care of ourselves, and if I don't take care of me, no one else will, and so we are focused on self. That's the mold of the world. Now let me um, just expand a little bit here because I know there's some of you out there that are probably thinking something like, yeah, but I don't love myself very well. I I have a poor self-image. I get down on myself, and so, so you're not talking to me here. I don't think too highly of myself. Well, let me say that I, like probably most of us in this room, have struggled with what we would call a poor self-image. And it can be very painful. We get down on ourselves. We beat ourselves up. But what I've come to see, and I think this is Paul's point here, is that a poor self-image, what we call a poor self-image, is at root self-centeredness. At root, it is selfishness. It's saying, I am down on myself because I'm not everything I think I should be. Or people aren't treating me the way I think they should. And so I'm really angry and frustrated and down on myself because of that. But do you see the twist of that? That's really self-centeredness. It's causing you to look inward and focus on yourself. The kingdom of God, when you become a Christian, God wants to free you from that self-centeredness. Because when you become his child, he says, I've adopted you in and nothing can separate you from my love. All of a sudden you find, I'm his. He loves me, so there's no need for me to focus on myself, to try to fix my own life, to take care of myself, because he's promised to take care of me. You see, he wants to set us free from that. So he says, don't think of yourself more highly or more important or more self-centeredly than you ought, but think rather with self or with sober judgment. Sober judgment. What is that? Well, I think he goes on to give us, I want to draw out three perspectives that we should have of ourselves. And if we have these three perspectives of who we are in Christ, it will begin to transform us and set us free from the tyranny of self. What are these three perspectives? Well, notice what Paul says. He says, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think more highly of yourself. Verse 4, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. I want you to notice something. He says, "Uh, I'm just sharing this by the grace given to me. The end of verse 3, he says, Think with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith given to you. Verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. What is grace? It's an undeserved gift. You see, if you want to have a proper view of yourself, it begins with realizing you are just a recipient of grace. The reason you are who you are, the reason God called you into his kingdom, The reason you have the abilities you do are because it's all a gift. It's not you. 
everything you have that's of value was created by God, was given to you. And we, I, all of us, are just recipients of grace. We've just received the gift that he has given us of life. Are we valuable? Absolutely, but because we've received the gift, not because of something inherent in us or my abilities. And if you begin to grasp that, that I'm just a recipient of grace, even my faith, he says, even your faith is given to you. So everything we have is from him. And when you begin to have that perspective, all of a sudden it frees you from this sense of self-importance or self-centeredness. Lord, thank you for the gifts you've given me. I just want to use them for you. So first, a realistic view of ourselves in Christ is that I'm just a recipient of his grace. I'm a sinner. I didn't bring anything to my salvation but my sin, but he's given me life. Thank you. Second perspective view we need to have is he goes on to this whole talking about the body of Christ and we are all part of the body. We don't have the same function. We're just part of the body with many members is that I am just a part of the body of Christ. I'm part of something bigger than me. I'm not the head. Christ is. And I'm not more important than any other body part. I, in fact, I'm dependent on you. And you're dependent on me. We're dependent on each other. You see, that's a healthy view of yourself. To say, you know what? I'm just part of something bigger than me. Jesus is the head. We're all under him but we're all equal under him when we're just part of something bigger than ourselves. A finger can do a lot of things. It's very valuable, right? But if you cut it off from the rest of the body, what happens? It's useless. It's dead. And that's true of every one of us here. We're part of a body that Jesus is the head of that we are simply just part of. And that's a healthy view of ourselves. But we're not only part of the body, but we are a unique part. And so third... I still have a special gift to share. I am unique. I am valuable because I have a special place to fill in God's kingdom that no one else can fill. As he goes on to say, if a man's gift, verse 6, is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If he's teaching, do it. If it's encouraging, go encourage somebody. If you have the gift of giving, contributing to the needs of others, give generously. If your spiritual gift is leadership, lead. If it's showing mercy, do it cheerfully. Now notice he puts all this range of gifts and he doesn't list every possible spiritual gift. He just gives some examples. And he says whether it's teaching or mercy or whatever, they're all valuable. They're all equally valuable. One gift isn't more important than others. We all have important gifts. And so every one of us is unique, and we have a special place to fill in God's kingdom. So use your gift. However God has gifted you to love other people, and if you're not sure what your spiritual gift is, then step out, get involved somewhere, and God will show you as you step out to seek to love other people. Every part of the body is critically important for the health of the body. Even nose hairs. It's true. And you may just be a nose hair. That's okay. You know what nose hairs do? They filter out the impurities that are going into your lungs and they protect your lungs and your heart so the vital systems in the body can be healthy. 
So if you're a nose hair, be the best one you can be. <laughs> we all have a place and we are needed for the body to be healthy. A few years back, in the evening, I started having this terrible pain back here. And, the, and, and it just hurt worse and worse. And I found out later that I had a kidney stone. And you know what? The rest of my body was so concerned about my kidney, it stayed up all night to keep me company. <laughs> Kept my kidney company all night. That's the way the body works. Every part's important. We're interrelated. And that is a healthy view of yourself to say, wow, everything I have to offer, everything I am, my ability to think, my ability to breathe, to act, is all a gift from you, Lord. And I'm just part of the body of Christ. We're all needed. I'm dependent on everybody else. But I do have a part to play. I am valuable. And I want to use my gift to serve others. If you have that perspective of who you are, it will set you free from self-centeredness and the tyranny of poor self-image and the other things that tie us down and keep us from living the kind of life that God wants us to live. So first of all, God wants to transform the way we relate to ourselves, the way we think about ourselves. But grace, being in the kingdom of God, being one of his citizens, also transforms the way we relate to other people. He wants us to not be conformed to the world in our relationships with others, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. What does that look like? Well, I've used the term in your outline, <clears throat> radical other-centeredness. Radical other-centeredness. It's just another word for love. <laughs> but in our terminology, we misuse the word love. We don't understand it very well. In English, we have one word for love. In Greek, there were several. The word that's used here is agape, love. Let love, let agape be sincere, he says in verse 9. We are to have a love that's sincere, and it's an agape kind of love. It's not one of the other kinds, which are based on feelings and emotions. In our culture, we think of love, and we think of feelings. And gee, if the feeling's gone, then I guess the love's gone. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a whole different kind of love, a biblical kind of love. Let's talk for a minute about being conformed to the world in this whole idea of relationships with others. Okay? As we're thinking about what love really looks like, what radical other-centeredness looks like. What are relationships like in the world? Well, essentially, the, what the world wants to conform us to is that other people are there for my happiness. They are there to make sure that I do okay. And if they don't make me happy, then they're out of my life. I don't want them in my life. They're there for primarily for my benefit. And if they add to my happiness, great. I'll be in relationship with them. But if not, I won't. You see how self-centered it is? Again, our relationships with one another tend to be self-centered. People are there for our sake. And as long as they benefit us, great. If not, then we don't want relationship with them. We tend to think of love as just being nice to one another. But I think what he's talking about here is a radical other-centeredness. This self-centeredness penetrates even the church, doesn't it? Ray Stedman puts it this way, What is the spirit of this age? 
is to seek my personal happiness. If the advancement of self is the basis of all life apart from God, then the goal of all life is my happiness. You hear that on every side, but unfortunately it's infiltrated the church as well. I hear people talking about church this way. I'm thinking of leaving this church and going to another one. If you ask them why, they'll reply, well, because this one doesn't meet my needs. As though the only reason for ever going to church is to have your needs met. (laughs) That's the thinking of the world. That's the spirit of this age. But don't we so easily fall into that kind of thinking? Church is there to meet my needs. But what God wants us to begin to take on, he wants to transform us so that our relationships are there from a perspective of radical other-centeredness. You see, the gospel, if it's really penetrated our lives and God has come into us and we have the Holy Spirit and he's loved us and he says, nothing can separate you from my love, then we're free from having to use other people to try to fill our emotional tanks. And we're free because God has filled us with life to pour out love to others. That's what Jesus said, right? If you come and drink from me, out of you will pour rivers of living water so others can drink. That's God's plan in our relationships with others. So what does he say about this? Paul says this, beginning of verse 9. Love must be sincere, genuine, unhypocritical. Hate what is evil, Cling to what is good. This is kind of a summary verse of the verses that follow, I think. It's an introductory verse. And he says, love, agape, love must be genuine. It must be sincere, not hypocritical. Now, don't get confused here because, again, a common way of thinking about this is that, well, okay, love should not be hypocritical or it has to be sincere. And A lot of times I just don't like people. I don't feel like loving them. And it would be hypocritical to act loving if I don't feel loving. Now we fall into that thinking, but understand that's the world's way of thinking. That is not what he's saying here. Love must be sincere, must be genuine, means you've got to check your motives. Am I doing this for your sake or for my own sake? It doesn't really have to do with feelings. It's agape love. And think about how Jesus loved us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if if it be at all possible, take this cup from me. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't feel very loving to these people that are rejecting me. But not my will, but yours be done. That's the essence of agape love, choosing the other person's good, whether it feels good or not. So love must be sincere has to do with our motives. Are we doing it for our sake or their sake? I remember hearing about a family that was needy. They needed groceries. They needed a number of items. And so I gathered a number of things together, went to the store, bought some things, and I thought, wow, I get to bless these people with this gift. So I took it over to the family, and they kind of went, well, we can't really use that, and that, you know, and oh, why'd you bring this? And and you know what? I was ticked. (laughs) And I realized what my motive was. I was doing this great thing so I could be appreciated for how loving I was. (laughs) 
And it was just clear my motive was wrong. You see, love needs to be genuine. We need to deal with our heart, abhor what's evil even in ourselves, cling to what's good, and seek to love others for their sake, not for our sake. We're not going to do that perfectly. We still need to step out. But just look at your motives as you do so. And it says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. I think that's so profound as you're thinking about moving into each other's lives and loving each other. Again, so often we think of love as just being nice. I'm just going to be tolerant and nice to everyone. That's love. No. If you really care about someone, you're going to hate the evil in their lives and you're going to cling to what is good. That is genuine love. That's really caring about them and helping them become part of the kingdom of God. I had a man I was talking to in my office who was struggling in his marriage and he was wrestling with his wife and the fact that, you know, she wasn't loving him very well and he was going on and on about all the things she was doing wrong. And, and you know what? It was so distasteful. I abhorred what I was hearing because it was all about him and what she was doing wrong, blaming her for everything. And as I gradually began to point that out and say, that's, you know, that's a better part of you and began to look for what was good he began to move more and more towards, you know, but I realized I haven't loved her very well. I haven't loved her. And as he began to focus on that, I clung to that. Cling, glue yourself to what's good in a person and what's godly and what's right. And I began to draw that out and say, yeah, that's the attitude God wants you to have. And yeah, she, maybe she isn't loving you well, but you know what? God's given you a place where you can bless her and learn to love her whether she loves you well or not. That's the kingdom of God. That's transformed relationships, abhorring what's evil, clinging to what is good. And then he lists a whole number, and I wish we could go in detail, but they're just wonderful descriptions, really, of what genuine love looks like in our relationships with one another. And one thing you see as you go through these, and I encourage you to meditate on them, <clears throat> is that relationships really are difficult. They are hard. There's things like, bless those who bless you, or bless those who curse you, excuse me. Bless those who curse you. Um, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You see, relationships are hard, and we're going to experience hard things in relationship with one another. But God calls us to have a transformed mind, not respond like the world. Huh, you're going to treat me that way? I'll treat you that way. But instead have transformed relationships where we learn to encourage and bless others whether they bless us or not. Let's just run through these quickly. He says, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Be devoted. It's an idea of commitment. I will commit myself to you for your good. Do you have people you've committed yourself to for their good that you want to be devoted to them and to learn to honor them above yourself, to put their needs above your own? You see, that's how God wants to live out his life through you, the way Jesus lived on earth. He wants to live out his life through us in that way. Going on, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now these commandments seem to focus on our relationship with God and I think it's a wonderful reminder that 
If we are going to love others, it's got to come out of a healthy relationship with him first. Fervent in prayer, focusing on him, keeping our spiritual fervor, growing in the Lord, reading the word so that we are continually being transformed. Otherwise, the world will begin to conform us to itself. Verse 13, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. He's talking about sharing your things, your money, your time. Practice hospitality. Use your home, everything you have, to bless others. Why do you think God has given you what you have? It's not for you. It's for the kingdom of God. It's to bless others with your home, your money, everything you have. And so he says, hey, in the kingdom of God, if you're a child of the kingdom, you're going to be looking for ways to bless others with what you have. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. He's saying your relationships should be so real that you are engaging on a very personal heart level so that when people are hurting, you're hurting with them. When you experience abuse and cursing that you bless in return, you're, you're experiencing the depth of relationship that's hard and difficult, but that's what God's called us to, to engage with people on that kind of level, to engage with people on our, with our heart, with our ears, with our mind, with our mouth, using our things, everything we are and have to bless the other person. The people who have loved me well, and I can say, man, they have loved me well, and there have been several, and most profoundly my wife, Jeannie, are those who have engaged with me on a heart level, who have entered into my life, committed themselves to me, who have been willing to stick by me and pursue me, who have hated my sin with me, who have clung to what is good and drawn out what's good and where Jesus is doing in me and has stuck by me even when I'm a pain and I'm selfish. See, that's, that's love. That's what God calls us to, genuine, sincere love with one another. Now, there's probably some of you out there that are thinking, well, that's fine for most of those other people, but you know what? I'm an introvert. And I just don't engage. I'm kind of a loner. I don't engage with people on that level. Well, according to statistics, 25 to 30% of you out here are introverts. But notice, Paul doesn't make any allowance for you to not have to live this out. (laughs) You see, you're called to the same kind of relationships. Now, you may not have as many people that you are involved with as some of us extroverts, But you are to have some in your life that you are pursuing, committed to, engaged with, where you are learning to bless them with everything you have, whether they bless you back or not. God has called us in a transformed world as citizens of the kingdom of God, as he lives his life out through us, to learn to love whether we are introverts or extroverts. And one of the best ways to do that, folks, and I've said this before, but I want to just remind you, is engagement in small groups of some kind. 
We gather on Sunday mornings, and I love coming together with the body of Christ as we're doing now, and we hear from God, and we respond to God in song and in prayer and a lot of different ways. It's a wonderful way together as the body of Christ to have our thinking transformed and to worship Him, and we need to be doing that. It's wonderful you're here. But equally as important is that we are involved in relationships with one another during the week where we are learning to love one another in a genuine, sincere way. And if you're not involved in a small group of some kind, it it can be formal or informal, but some kind of small group where you're learning to love well, then you need to be. Whether it's a women's study or a men's study or a growth group or a discipleship group or a leadership team in some ministry or just regular meeting with friends where you're talking and sharing and encouraging each other in your walks with the Lord or whatever, you've got to be in relationship with others in a consistent way if you are going to learn to live out your life in Christ. So grace changes the way we view ourselves. Grace changes the way we relate to one another and it changes the way we deal with those who harm us. Evil people in our world. And that's the last section of this passage, verses 17 through 21. Because the truth is, folks, we live in an evil world. And people do great harm to us at times. And Satan is out to do us harm. And all of us at times are treated with evil. Some of you have experienced horrible, unspeakable evils in your life. Sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, threats. Or maybe you've experienced unfair treatment on the job. Maybe people have just hated you for no reason. Maybe you've been betrayed in a significant relationship in a horribly painful, wrong, evil way. Maybe even in your marriage. It's terrible. It's painful. How are we to respond? Well, the world's way of response is one of two ways, right? Typically, it's you cut off the person from your life. You just shut them out totally. That's the way they're going to be fine. I just won't have anything to do with them. Or we seek revenge. We want to somehow punish them so we don't talk to them for a week or we do this or whatever, to punish them, to get them back for what they've done for, to us. We find some way to seek revenge. Well, the passage really, I think, gives us a whole different way of relating to that. Now, let me say that, you know, revenge can be very satisfying, can't it? <laughs> I mean, we want that. Uh, there's movies that I really like because they're so satisfying because they're full of revenge, You know, kind of Rambo-type movies or Tombstone, if you remember. It's a 1993 movie that Wyatt Earp, you know, he's he's in the town of Tombstone and his brother gets killed, another one's shot, and their family is just decimated and he slinks out of town because of this gang called the Cowboys that had decimated his family. And the rest of the movie is about him coming back and taking revenge on the entire gang. You know what? It's a great movie. (laughs) It's really satisfying. Because there's something about us that wants revenge. 
But you know what? When we try to get revenge, it's never satisfying, really. It never is. And as children of grace, we are free to respond differently than the world around us. And so in this passage, I think we see a progression here. He begins this way in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. First he says, hey, don't pay him back. Don't retaliate. And that's our first reaction, and that's why he begins there. Whoa, don't just stop. Don't try to get him back. Don't pay back evil for evil. If you do, you only escalate the amount of evil in the world. And it doesn't do any good at all. So don't retaliate. But I like what N.T. Wright in his commentary says. He says, saying you shouldn't take revenge isn't a way of saying evil isn't real or that it didn't hurt at all or that it doesn't matter. Evil is real. It does hurt. And sometimes it hurts very badly and with lasting effects. And evil does matter. Because we believe in a creator God who made a good and lovely world, We believe that everything which defaces and distorts, damage or despoils part of that creation is not just some other variety of goodness, but it's actually its opposite. It's evil. The question is, what do we do about it? Well, first of all, he says, don't retaliate. Secondly, he says, seek peace. Notice what he says. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. More literally, he's saying, look for what is good or beautiful in the situation. Look for what is good or beautiful in the situation. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. When you've been hurt, the tendency is to focus on the pain and what they've done to you and to become consumed by that and be eaten up by that. But he says, no, Look for what's good. Look for what God's doing. Even in that evil situation, look for the hand of God. And as far as it depends on you, seek shalom. Seek peace. Now notice what it says, as far as it depends on you. Relationships are always two-sided, and you can't control what the other person does, and you may never be able to have peace with that person. Granted. But he allows for that, but he says, as far as it depends on you, seek peace. So first, don't retaliate. Secondly, as far as it depends on you, seek peace. And third, leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for God's wrath. Notice what he says. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. I think the reason we like movies like Tombstone (laughs) is because it's okay to want justice. We do want justice. We do. We aren't just to tolerate evil. We should want justice to come. We should want vengeance when people have harmed us. But notice what he says, don't take it in your own hands. When we step in and try to bring vengeance or punish the other person for what they've done, we get in the way of what God wants to do in the situation. So he says, leave room, back off, and leave room for God to work. You know what? God is far better than you or me at dealing with the other, with evil and at bringing true justice. So let's not get in the way. He says, leave room for God to deal with it in his way, in his timing. It may not be as quickly as we'd like, but God will deal with it in the right way because he is 
God. Fourth, do good in a practical way towards the person. On the contrary, he says, verse 20, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, don't misunderstand this verse. He isn't saying, if you be good to the person, they're going to burn. Yeah. Okay, that's not what he's saying. (laughs) He's saying, look for practical ways to love them, to be kind to them, to do them physical, actual good. If your enemy's a neighbor, shovel his walk for him. Bring his dog back. Paint his fence. I don't know. Do something to demonstrate God's love to them. And in doing that, you will heap burning coals. Now, this was an image, as far as we can tell, from the Egyptian world that was a picture of guilt and repentance. That by doing this, what you do is by being good and, not giving, and giving them what they don't deserve, loving them in a practical way, it brings about a sense of guilt so that, by God's grace, they may be someday led to repentance for the evil they brought against you. So he says, look for a practical way to do good and bless that person. Have Jesus' attitude as he had when he was being nailed to the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You see, that's what Jesus wants to do through you, to have that kind of attitude towards, towards those who have done you harm. Because the whole goal is given in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When people have harmed us, even if we don't punish them, we can be eaten up by anger and resentment. We can be overcome by evil. It happens a lot. And it's destructive every time. When you let that root of bitterness, of resentment, live in you, it doesn't say that you haven't been harmed greatly. There is evil in the world and we get harmed. But as we learn to let it go and let, give it to God and learn to practically do good to other people who have harmed us, we are overcoming evil with good. You see, this, re- this world really is a world where there's a huge battle going on between good and evil. We forget that sometimes. But I think that's why we like movies like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or others where you see this confrontation between good and evil and this battle going on. It's true. And as citizens of the kingdom of God, because he's loved us, we have the opportunity to not be overcome by evil and add to the evil in the world, but to overcome evil with good. As we learn to leave room for God's wrath, as we learn to bless, as we learn to do good to the person, as we learn not to retaliate, but as we learn to leave it in God's hands. I've seen that happen. I have some friends who were harmed terribly, unspeakably. I I wouldn't even want to mention it from up here, what has happened to them. And yet I've seen their lives turned around because they've learned to live out this passage. It's not easy. Towards those who have done evil to them, to some they've been able to have a peaceful relationship, to some they never have been able to. But as far as it depends on them, they've sought 
to love and reach out, and they are free. I have other friends who have hung on to the bitterness and guilt, or bitterness and anger at what's been done to them, and they are enslaved. It's your choice. You've been harmed, but you have the opportunity as a citizen of God's kingdom with Christ in you who wants to live his life through you to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. You see, if you're a Christian, God's kingdom is broken into your life. His spirit is planted in you and he wants you to be transformed in how we relate. First to ourselves, to see ourselves soberly, realistically. Secondly, to how we relate to one another and learning to be other-centered, give our lives away rather than self-centered. And to learn to relate to the evil in our world in a way that overcomes it rather than is overcome by it. In this way, In this way, we show that we are citizens of a different kingdom than the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have made us new. You've planted your spirit in us. You've given us life. You promised that nothing can separate us from your love. But Lord, we're really talking about living this out in a day-to-day reality here, and it's not easy. So, Lord, live your life through us. Help us to become people who are transformed in how we view ourselves and how we learn to be other-centered with others and in the way we deal with those who are evil in our world. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.